Hello and welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt-Delete. My guest today is Bruce Daisley. He is the European Vice President at Twitter and the host of the brilliant business podcast Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, which I've been on as a guest. So it's only right that Bruce comes on my podcast. Slight disclaimer that I've known Bruce for years and he's actually been a kind of unofficial mentor to me, really, giving me advice and pep talks and wisdom ever since I kind of entered the world of work and had many different jobs from working in agencies and working in magazines to working for myself. And he's someone who has a really great perspective on what it means to be happy at work. And he's just written a whole book about it. He has a book that's coming out called The Joy of Work, 30 Ways to Fix Your Work Culture and Fall Back in Love with Your Job Again. It's out on Blue Monday in January. So look out for that because I think it's great that it's coming out on the saddest day of the year. And he really is quite obsessed with making work better. He really cares about people being happier at work. He's spoken to so many leading experts in workplace culture which has made it into his book and he's interviewed many people on his podcast and um, the book really gives so many practical ways on how to improve our work culture which fundamentally I think is kind of broken. Bruce has been one of the Evening Standard's 1,000 most influential Londoners for the past four years and he's one of Debrett's 500 most influential people in Britain. According to Campaign Magazine, Bruce is one of the most talented people in media and I do think he is just fantastic and just a really great person. So I loved this episode. I'm quite hyperactive in this episode, in fact, and we just keep chatting and chatting that this episode is slightly longer than most of my episodes. In this episode, we talk about stress and creativity and the new version of work that we hope to get to maybe in the future. And he talks about so many things, um, practical things that are in the book. I don't want to spoil it by giving away all of the amazing advice now. So you'll have to listen to the episode in full and I hope you enjoy it. Um, I really loved this episode and it was so fun listening to it back when I was editing it. Thank you so much to you for listening to my podcast and please remember to leave me a rating or a review if you enjoyed it and I'll see you next week. And here it is. Welcome, Bruce Daisley, to my podcast. Hello. I'm so excited to have you on. I've wanted to have you on for years, literally since I first launched it, but we, you know, we're waiting for the book to come out so that you're starting to plug. Yeah, that's why I wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, we, I've known you for ages and you've been really helpful to me throughout my career. I think I verified you. I think back in the day, um, I think back like when you were, I don't know what job you were doing then, I think you were working in an ad agency or something, and you were doing Girl Lost in City, Yeah. and you were doing an occasional column for The Telegraph, um, or the, you know, like posting things for The Telegraph, and I think you contacted me saying I'd love to get verified, and I think I just started chatting to you from there really. Oh, I'm sorry about that, because in your bio it says, like, I don't verify people. It doesn't say that anymore. That act of (laughs) passive aggression has been removed. Because of people like me. (laughs) Um, But now you're my fellow podcaster as well in the business Mm. charts. So I wanted to ask you, because I don't know if I know whether the podcast came first and then the book, or the book and then you started the podcast. Yeah, you know what happened was, um, so the, the, the podcast is about sort of making work better, sort of uh, work culture thing. And it was largely because I, I started doing it a couple of years ago, and um, and I thought I'm going to do six of these. And I was doing six of them because... You know, I, we've all had jobs that are good and jobs that are really bad. And, and it's like this weird chemistry. You can have a company that's bad, but you love your colleagues. Or you can have, you know, a company that's great, but your colleagues are zombies. And like there's this weird dynamic. And I was very fortunate that when I used to work at YouTube, people used to say about my team at YouTube, wow, that's the best team here. Like they used to say, best team at Google. And then I came to Twitter and I was very fortunate that people used to come to the London office and say, you know what, it's buzzing in that office. It's sort of really good. And I decided, therefore, as sort of an act of vanity, that it was my it was my fault that those those teams were so good. And then a couple of years ago, it got really tough here at, here at Twitter. And, um, and I just thought it was clearly nothing to do with me that it was good. 
And uh, so I started looking into what makes good working environments. And what I realised was there's loads of people who do research. These people's jobbies, professors mm. of, of working out what's good at work and no one who has a job. You know, when you were back in sort of Grazia or when you were working at the debrief, no one told you that there was science on what made a good, a good team or a good company. So I was just blown away by that. So I started doing the podcast. I thought, am I going to do six of them? And it was entirely for that reason, to try and understand what people who studied work knew about work. Because the catchphrase of Twitter, I've actually forgotten it now, but it's in here, obviously. Do what you love. Uh, love what you do. Oh, right. No, so, so that, um, love where you work. Love where you work, So yeah. that was weirdly um, this thing that sort of developed organically. Not so much a catchphrase as we had... I'll tell you the whole story. So, you know, when I joined Twitter in the UK, there was like a dozen of us, really small. We're in a tiny little serviced office. And we, um, we was, everyone was doing everything. There was no sort of room for, for any vanity. And we hired a, a sort of hardworking, diligent, brilliant uh, Kiwi woman called Lucy, Lucy Mosley. And she came here. Um, and about 12 months after she'd been here, she really unfortunately uh got ill and um and it, it was one of those things where she got cancer she she actually she didn't know what was wrong with her but she um she 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 was like she she felt there was something in her her, her stomach she she mm. couldn't she was doing like a hundred 200 sit-ups she couldn't get rid of it and then she went away one day and and she she found that a cyst had been in there and it had burst and uh, one thing or another, she she developed. She had terminal. She she discovered very abruptly she had terminal cancer with like weeks to live, uh, and it was immensely it was immensely um, difficult because her partner felt that she was being overwhelmed by the messages that were coming in. You know, it's mm-hmm. like you you hear something's bad. You try and phone someone. You try and text them, or you know, a lot of people here tweet, and he said, "Look, can you stop messaging her?" So we had this really sad situation where someone we loved you know like in a really small intimate office you know mm-hmm. you know someone better than your family in, in yeah. some ways uh, someone we loved had uh, got really ill and we had no way to send messages in addition they the hospice that she was now on said no sugar no flowers so someone suggested that we knit a blanket and uh, to, to this day, actually, I've got knitting needles and wool at home because I found it was a good way to stop me playing with my phone. Mm. But we all knitted this blanket that was like this. Uh, it was full of love. Let's describe it that way. It was like uh, it was very character characterful. But we knitted this blanket and then we sent her. We had it dry cleaned and we sent it over to her. And uh, she sent a tweet, which was sort of. Uh, sitting there with my Twitter blanket and she hashtagged it, love where you work. So it was just an organic wow. thing. And so, you know, if anyone comes to the Twitter office now, there's a big sign saying it's love like where you work. It's like the first thing you see, yeah, really. Yeah. yeah, And it's an interesting thing, actually, because a lot of people sometimes come and think, is the company instructing people to love where they work? And, no, and far from it, you know, it was like this, oh, we'll bring a bit of her with us. Yeah. So that's why we put the sign there. Wow, I had no idea that's where yeah, it came from. Yeah, that's but... what happened. But now people from other offices came and they'd hear that story. Yeah. And they'd say, do you mind if we put a love where you work sign up? That's sort of lovely. this it's little like movement. movement. Every office you go to has got this sign. And if you ever click on hashtag love where you work, you'll almost, you know, Almost the whole hashtag is people at Twitter. And they're often just doing silly things, right? Someone's made you a cup of tea and someone will have will have tweeted love where you work. You know, yeah. they're often just all people will have, you know, run the London Marathon and, and they'll have done it for, for a mm. charity. And so so it's it's things like that. It's just become like um it's become an organic catchphrase yeah. rather than something we we ever you intended didn't to do. Sit down and brainstorm about yeah. that. That's such a wow, Because I, I guess Having that as well, though, I, I wondered whether it added a pressure to when things do did go a bit bad. It's almost like you know what a good workplace looks like. You've had those moments where you think, oh, my God, we are all smashing it. And, yeah, I just wondered whether it felt like there was a an added layer of, oh, this is, you know, we need to fix this. Exactly right. Exactly that. You know, I'm convinced that the people who create the culture in their company aren't the bosses. They're like everyone doing the work day to day. You know, it's like you can go and share a glass of wine at the end of the day 
and moan about the boss, but actually think I love working with these people, right? And and I would work harder for these people. But because um, we'd had a really good, amazing sort of familial culture here, exactly as you say, you know, when things aren't right, it's you feel, even though you don't feel responsible when things are good, you feel responsible when things are bad. And mm-hmm. so I was just interested, you know, I, I think in truth, most people in work are, they would probably admit they're more exhausted than they would like to be they they don't feel like they're giving their best ideas they feel you know that then leads to a bit of imposter syndrome where you're feeling like you want to go into that idea session and give a really smart zingy idea and you feel like you're sort of giving something that's a bit flat and I think everyone in work's like that just because the way that work has become the last few years it's relentless it's relentless with um, that in mind, also the book being the joy of work and the fact that it's, I love that it's 30 ways to fix work culture and fall in love with your job again. The fact that it's 30 ways, it's really nice, really kind of digestible and you can read it and dip in and out. I wondered whether um, with the love where you work, where do you think is the kind of balance of not going too far into you must love your work every day? Because I think I've got a pretty cool job I don't love my job every day and I just wondered how do you find balancing the hard stuff with feeling like you love your work yeah I think you mentioned it in your book you know that woman Misu oh yes at uh, the Atlantic maybe and and she it's really bad that I can't remember I can't remember her name Uh, either but she I'll put it in the uh, that that thing that Steve Jobs used to say about you gotta love what you do is an unreasonable expectation on people because and you quote that in the yeah, intro yeah yeah because it's unre- because you know most of us if you're going to work as you know accounts payable somewhere then I, I don't think you would ever have said this was my calling in life and I'm gonna love what I, I do it's very easy survivors bias it's very easy mm. for Steve Jobs to say you gotta love what you do and that's why he's a billionaire f- phone inventor whereas actually most people are never going to be in the situation where they say I truly love what I do but they might get some satisfaction from it some some reward from it and also the danger of love what you do is that it creates a very unreasonable demand upon you because you Mm -hmm. know because people can exploit you right they'll say well if you loved what you did you do it for free if you love what you do, you wouldn't want to pay rise. Yeah. You know, there's other people who want this job. So it creates an unreasonable expectation. And there's all the manual labour and you've got to have a massive smile on your face. Yeah. Why can't you just do the work? Yeah. yeah. And that's it. So the reason why there's like 30 chapters, I'm convinced people don't read books. And so, you know, they don't finish them. How many books have I got that we've dipped into? And so I thought if I make the 30 things and if all that someone does is rips out one chapter, photocopies it and gives it to their team but it's been like a successful intervention that they've tried Mm. something out, then that's what I'm convinced. I'm convinced that you change work culture by a passionate person with evidence and a motivation. Arm people with facts and they can improve things. But, um, But at the moment, you've got a situation where, you know, Things like I think one of the worst things that happens in work culture is bosses emailing at the weekends, mm. or you know, or just like the the burden of of meetings that most people have got, like this overwhelming, you know, sense of twenty or fifteen or twenty hours a week of meetings, which are like these horrible, almost hostage-like situations. And I think when you find a little bit of evidence that okay, that um, sort of meetings aren't necessarily productive or that these things aren't necessarily helping us out I think you know when you identify that and you find a bit of evidence for it I think by arming someone with a bit of that evidence they might be able to change their work culture yeah because you kind of got like a too long didn't read bit at the end of each section which I love which is like things you can do next because when I read this I thought oh I could have done with this book a while ago when I hated my job but also I think a lot of people are looking for those just really practical things like the fact that you know what you just said about halving meetings and also no phones in meetings it's like that two things that I reckon people could go and do tomorrow that would would fix some some problems yeah and you know for me these it was so interesting to look at the science of some of these things so the thing that I love the most about the science of it was that um the power of laughter and you know what especially when you're in a stressful environment you know especially if there's there's a bit of a douche of a boss 
and you you feel embarrassed laughing at your desk or you feel embarrassed sharing a moment of, of laughter because especially if the numbers for the company aren't right or things yeah. aren't going well. You feel like, you know, it invites that catty response. Catty responses are the toxin of work. Mm. But it invites that catty response. Have you got anything to do? You guys not busy? The idea that you've got to sort of sit somberly at your desk all day. And uh, for me, finding out that the science of laughter is it makes us more creative. It makes it improves teamwork. It sort of makes us... It yeah. makes us more willing to just contribute more than we would have done otherwise. It's good to see there's some science on laughter. Rather. Yeah. I always find that with giving talks or listening to a talk, if they've made me laugh, I'm in. I'm going to listen to the whole thing. And totally I'm going to I'm going to just like trust what they say, weirdly, more. Because they've invited me in and on a different level. Yeah. I, t- I couldn't agree more, you know. Um, and I was chatting to someone actually recently. I was chatting to... Um, a, a woman who has written a book about sort of um, Sue Unerman, who's written a book called The Glass Wall about sort of gender divides. And she was saying, yeah, a lot of men do funny presentations. And I said, and she said, whereas when I write, she said to me, when I write my presentations, I find it difficult to get jokes in. I said, I'm not going to lie to you. I often start with a joke. I often start with, if I've got a funny clip, I will... That'll be the thing, you know, when I'm out talking about work culture, there's one clip I pretty much always use and uh, it's because it just warms the room. And, and yeah. you know, it becomes an exercise sometimes in, can I really get that clip in there? But I know, the funny thing is, I used to work at YouTube and, and going around presenting YouTube, you knew you could always make people laugh. Yeah. And at the end of it, people go, that was a really funny presentation. I guarantee I did not say a single funny word. I shoehorned a funny video that was 30 seconds long into the start of that. And people associated me with that humor. So That's so good. Uh, honestly, you know, uh, I very happily will present somewhere with no slides. But if I can present somewhere and just show a funny video at the start, you'd be amazed what a con trick it is, actually. Yeah, you've tricked yeah. people into liking you and, and tricked- probably remembering it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I have I have a question about kind of this um, thing about work culture, but also about flexibility and also this, this idea of having some sort of balance. I think when you're senior, may and and I know that it's a lot of work being senior. It's not like you're just dossing off, but you maybe can do a little bit more of what you want. I got an out of office the other day from someone being like, you know, our company is flexible, so I'm actually not working today. And it was like, it was a lovely out of office kind of explaining the culture. But I thought, what happens if you have a lot to get through? Like, can the intern act the same as the CEO? Is that possible? Because I remember what it was like being junior and you can't just like take the afternoon off. How do you feel about yeah. that? And it's exactly right. So, you know, what, one of the best examples of that, people often say about sort of any of these things, they say, you know, so one of the best things I say to, for people to do is turn notifications off on their phone. Email especially. If you can't turn one thing off, email notifications. But a lot of people say as a result of that, they say, you don't know my boss mm. or you don't know my clients often comes back. You don't know the people I de- deal with. If I didn't respond to them, the they would think I'm useless. And, you know, I think one of the things that I found is the reason why I'm convinced that you change culture with evidence and discussion rather than, you know, unilateral action. Mm. So I think you change culture by there's some brilliant stats about burnout and creativity. So, you know, one of the critical things is in the next 15 years, as computers take more of our jobs, the most important parts of our job is going to be the bits where we're doing something creative, Mm. where creativity isn't, you know, writing a Pixar movie but it's more you know you're responsible for packaging in your firm and you think of a new way to do it right like it's just really mundane creativity but the creativity is going to be the most important part and if you look at the science people who are stressed cannot be creative it's almost like this direct uh, kill switch it sort of stops your creativity and so as a result of that you know anything that's causing stress amongst people is clearly a bad thing now Mm -hmm. Weekend emails are one of the things that causes stress. And if your boss knew that emailing you on a Sunday was damaging your ability to be creative, then maybe this this evil boss might think twice about doing it. Because normally when you chat to bosses, they say, oh, I didn't know I was just emailing. I didn't know I was doing any harm. And so for me, 
you know, the book is specifically, bosses don't read books like this. The book is specifically aimed at people who are in their workplace thinking, uh, you know, this is broken, this doesn't mm-hmm. work, this is, what's going on here is crazy. And they just think, let's try and change one or two things. So I completely agree with mm-hmm. you. You know, if you're the intern, it's very difficult to tell the boss hey, just do you want to go easy on the Saturday emails? But <laughs> somehow... Or at least put like for Monday in yeah, the subject, yeah. which I do, because I email on weekends, do but, but I'm like, don't read till Monday. I mean, and <laughs> I, I know that that's probably, thinking about that now, they're going to read it. Yeah. But mine the fact is they don't to, have to reply. Mine just go into drafts. And so, you know, there's just like a tsunami of, of Gmail on a Monday morning yeah. at like 7 o'clock. The moment I'm eating my Otibix on a Monday morning. <laughs> this might be, sound a little bit contradictory, but for a company like Twitter, though, or YouTube or Google or any tech company, I find the idea of weekends quite outdated because, I mean, I, I got an email from iTunes the other day being like, hi, guys, we're going to be out of the office for Christmas. This is like the team at iTunes right. being like, so any updates on iTunes might be a bit delayed. And I'm thinking... That's a bit weird that you guys don't have anything like covered for like weekends or for Christmas breaks. I mean, they do at weekends, but it's but isn't isn't the company always on? Look, but the the challenge is this: as soon as you know, let's look at you know the, the uh, in twenty eighteen, Elon Musk as the poster boy for overwork. I think had a pretty bad year. Uh, you know, he was most recently in, like, just at the, the end of last year in December. He was he was on video crying about his his tweets, and then before that, he tweeted that you know nothing was ever achieved on a forty hour week. And like he's he's very avowedly said, you got to work eighty to one hundred and twenty hours. Now. Sounds like Gary Vaynerchuk as right, well. Like right. it, it's like this relentless hustle always thing on, that scares me. Always on. What you find is in those people that, that um, I mean, half of all people who check emails outside of work hours show the highest recordable levels of stress. Mm. So stress is everywhere. It's just they're, they're the people who are most vividly experiencing it. But it affects your, um, it affects your, it inflames your, your nervous system. It, cr- it creates actual illness through overwork so you you see all these things it it strongly damages you and i think actually the secret of work is these unlike the iphone no one's going to unveil the new version of work it's not like you're going to oh you're upgrading to new that's never going to happen you kind of have with your manifesto but but do you know what i mean like there's lots of little changes so you know some of them are so trivial taking a lunch break when you say to people You'll feel so much happier at weekends, and you and your sleep will be better from taking a lunch break. People think, oh, it's it's a bit trivial, but people who do it go, you know what? I do feel better for taking three lunch mm-hmm. breaks that week, and you know to try and get some balance into what they're doing, and yeah. or just try and do stuff with their with the the time that they're given. They feel more refreshed from it. Um, but yeah, I hear you that there is an expectation now to for people to be contactable and connectable but I think that expectation we should try and own it as much Mm -hmm. as we can there was a brilliant thing I saw that um, you know like a lot of people uh, management consultants say they need to be contactable all the time and so a, Mm -hmm. a, a brilliant scientist went in and said to them I want you to have one night a week where you don't look at email and for them this was like a very big change they they didn't want to go through it and she said one night a week and I want you to be in a team so so you can all cover each other but you know on if your night off is Tuesday I want you to have Tuesday night off what she found was all of them said at the end of it I feel so much happier by just giving myself the headspace of not doing it but it also led to more cooperation between them in the team so people who'd maybe not discussed that they had you know, theatre tickets that night with each other or that they had some big thing with their partner that night said, guys, I can't do Wednesday. Can I have, can, can that be my night off? And it led to more cooperation mm. between them. So I do hear you that we have got an expectation that people are going to be contactable more of the time. But I think for, our, you know, we can't on the one hand talk about the importance of mental health and on the other hand say we want to be connected. Yes, 180 hours a week I think it's more for me like the traditions of the weekend and the weekday I I understand that like we need a break and we need weekends we need time off god we do but I also feel like the way the future of work is going I actually think that people might have more four-day weeks and three-day weekends 
Or if you're a contractor, maybe you are working on a Sunday, but you're not working on a Tuesday. I feel like everything's kind of up for grabs at the yeah. moment. Like we could like look at these seven days and we could do what we want with them. I completely agree. So if if the thing that you're doing, you know, as you've so clearly said, if you're living a multi-hyphen life and like you're trying to redefine who you are as a person in the three days that you're you're not in your day job then clearly you've got email at those times mm. it can't be like you just you sort of you, you create all these emails that suddenly then go out of the airlock two days three days later what i'm saying though is that the if we're gonna make ourselves happier then thinking about the importance of rest as much as the importance of work yes. is probably a balance to get back to. Totally. And w- and that could look different for like a nurse working like a weekend yes. shift. That would then just turn on its head and be like, how do you find the rest in the week? Yeah. Same thing. Exactly that. And look, you know, I, I think any of us, you know, quite often there's an illusion, especially when you're early in your career, you think I'm going to work a bit longer because I'll get promoted quicker. And what you find when anyone does research into working weeks, they find that the most that anyone can productively work is about 50, well, 50 hours, really. There is an amount you can go up from 50 to 55. But let's say, but the amount that you're adding for those extra five hours is so tiny. So the moment you accept 50 hours is all that your brain really can work. Mm. Then you start saying, but could I do a fresh 40 hours a week and then prioritize my relaxation it's why i the the organization slack you know the, the, oh i love the, slack the, but slack say do a good day's work and go home so their office has no table football no things to keep you there oh love that no evenings i hate perks <laughs> <laughs> i'm like stop making me go on your weird like work holidays <laughs> <laughs> but you know <laughs> but those um they go 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 at home and they actually celebrate people having side hustles mm. so people who make make things in their spare time or who do things because they think actually it makes a richer and more rounded person well slack has totally changed the way i work i've never like i used to whatsapp with my team now we're on slack and then you do the little snooze thing it doesn't even go through oh, or okay. or they don't get alerted yeah. It's really great. It's that's just, right. it's just boundaries, like basically. Yeah, that's right. Micro boundaries. Yeah, that's right. But I mean, sorry if this puts you on the spot a bit, but you are really good at getting a lot done and, and using your time well. But you you are like the managing director of Europe, Twitter. Yeah. And you've got a book coming out in January yeah. and you've got a successful podcast. People ask me this all the time. So that's why I'm like, it's an annoying question. But how have you done that? Do you think you just, sometimes you have like really busy months and then you know that you're going to have a quieter month? So my work is my work and so you know i i i don't really allow the side project which is my obsession with work to interfere mm. with my actual even though job. it all helps like it does absolutely together. but you know like um there's certain things that are non-negotiable meetings and calls and things with colleagues and like they they always take top priority you know, quite often though, if I'm on a flight somewhere, somewhere someone will turn to me. Someone turned to me last year and said, "What are you reading?" And I was reading like a 42-page scientific paper about the banking, the working hours in the banking industry. He just right. shook his head and put a movie on. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, um, so, but it's, it's become, it's become a real passion point. I tell you, I did this like little manifesto. And the, the idea of the manifesto... Oh, yeah. What's, what's it called so people can New Google Work Manifesto. It. And the idea of the manifesto was, I wonder if these eight changes that people could do, back to that idea of the new version of work won't be unveiled, uh, the, the eight changes that work can do that could maybe improve the working environment. And the really interesting thing, I got contacted by police forces, health service workers, teachers, you know, office workers, and uh, saying we've we've implemented this, we're trying it out. We really love this one. And you know, as I always say, these things are really mundane. It's turn your notifications off. It's try and work no more no more than forty hours. Take mm-hmm. a lunch break. You know, don't email at the weekends. They're really sort of trivial things, but each of them is backed up quite often with a TED talk or with a just an article to share and and the thinking was I want to empower a movement of people who who long term won't even know this manifesto existed but they say oh round here we do this mm. you know empower change and the book was the same really it it felt like from my own first-hand experience I was exhausted by work 
and I could see people around me were exhausted. So it felt a bit like, I can't believe it, that there's all this science over there and no one is bringing this science over to people in work. And so that's why I'm very much of the opinion, if people only read one chapter and and sort of pass that around and that becomes no one even knows where it came from but that becomes what they do in their in their company then for me like gradually will will make work better for people mm. there's some really sad things when you look at the stats about work you know that one of the stats about uk workers is that only eight percent of uk workers are engaged with their job god yeah it's how depressing but the one that breaks my heart and londoners hate their right, jobs you know worst worst commute in europe 75 minute commute the average londoner then you're coming to a job but the the stat that breaks my heart is 60 percent of british workers say they're lonely at work mm-hmm. right i mean this is where we're spending all of our days and nights and worse destined for retirement where we're lonely as well like life isn't meant to be lonely and so that's you know the interesting thing for me is can people there's someone i know a close a close um uh, family connection to mine who says that their job people cry in the toilets at lunchtime mm. and 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 it makes me it makes me heartbroken when i think about things like that because there's not a big jump from people having these jobs that are sad to having jobs that might still not be the most glamorous job in the world but are just a bit more uh, rewarding and enriching really. I feel like this is really urgent I think that loads of companies could save themselves if they fix the culture a bit because I actually I know that I you know quit my job and followed my dreams type thing but I only did that because I felt like work wasn't working. Yeah. And actually, I wanted, I actually wanted to be in an office job I liked. Like, that was the goal, and the goal didn't work. So it's almost like to retain talent, I think yeah. this is really, really important. Well, do you remember People when are going to leave. When you went from debrief to glamour, and you were like, you, I think you were doing four day a week, weren't you? And But you wanted to make it work. Yeah. You wanted to make the sort of the office thing work. When an, when an office environment works, I think it's the it's the best. Yeah. You get to hang out with people you like. You get to, you know, have all, have almost like a second home. Yeah. And that's lovely. Like there are definitely downsides of working for yourself. You don't have, any, you don't have anywhere to really go. Yeah. I mean, I know WeWork is obviously on the rise and, and, and that's sort of a like... It's like a, an office that I guess you can dip in yeah. and out of, but it's not really the same. There's this magical thing that I discovered when I was researching exactly about that. There's this weird thing about being around people that creates like this dark matter of work. And so the, the, the best examples, you see it in choirs. If you put strangers in a choir and get them to sing together, they can uh, their pleasure hormones go up. And the way that scientists measure that, they, they measure it by inflicting pain upon people. Seems pretty mean. But they, like, they put these sort of arm cuffs around people, inflate them and see how much pain they can take. But people who sing together, even strangers who sing together in a choir, their, their pleasure hormones mm. go up. Then you get people to row alongside each other. So these are professional they're sort of college rowers and you get them to row individually or you get them to row so they have to be in time with each other the ones who are in time with each other in sync in this sort of human sync with each other are able to take twice the pain of the other ones you get people to dance together and they show exactly the same so there's this weird thing that when we're sort of we we have this connection to other human beings something's created and you see loads of it um couples who so sync can be activated by talking it can be activated by laughing it can be activated by doing those physical things but you see it with couples so couples who have a long distance relationships the couples who uh, scientists looked at 4,000 couples the couples who survive their relationship survive are the ones that phone each other every day and talk about boring things so there might be nothing to talk about what have you done today well just went to work nothing nothing to talk about but it's the ones who like had that human sync were the ones that stayed together it's and really interesting yeah it really and so one of the most powerful ways to activate it is face-to-face chat or laughter and so what you find is some of the really successful companies and this is like an example of why you don't need power to change a company um, i went to meet this uh, company where the receptionist had introduced crisp thursday 
I mean, it's, too, it's almost too ridiculous almost to tell you about. And she said, we had a new boss arrive and we were kind of embarrassed to tell the new boss <laughs> about Crisp Thursday. On Thursday at 4.30, she would, like, they were fortunate their office was just one long room and there was a table down the middle. On 4.30, one Thursday, she said it's Crisp Thursday and there laid out on plates were a few kettle chips, <laughs> a few Pringles. Aww, right, that's, that's it. Sweet. That's it. She, the the woman who told me about it, Claud- Claudia uh, Newman, she told me uh, she told me it's become a ritual there because what happens is at four thirty on Thursday, good time for it actually as well. People sort of know that they're going to get a handful of Pringles and oh, I need some to interaction. Chat, I need to chat to Emma actually. Oh, Emma, you're going to be at Crisp Thursday. <laughs> just need a quick chat. It's not a meeting because you know the thing about meetings is they and you don't have to spend loads of money. Just yeah, get some crisps. That's it. And, uh, you know, meetings become this half an hour thing where someone's prepared slides. That's not what I wanted. I just wanted a quick chat with Emma about what she's doing about that project. And so weirdly, you know, back to like the sink thing that, you know, okay, we can find the magic of sync is when people are rowing or dancing or singing. But you can actually get that sync from really silly little things. And the thing I love about that is it's the receptionist that did it. Mm, so, you know, yeah. And it's with your point about how it doesn't always need to be right. the boss or like the... Exactly. And Claudia said to me, it's one of the best things about our culture. People see it as, you know, it's like a family tradition a bit. It's like this weird thing where can't explain why it's so good, but it makes everyone here mm. so happy. People people send emails saying, what's happening at Crisp Thursday? Right. I'm we're, I I think people listening are gonna it's like one of those things where you're like i could do that yeah that's right very anyone do. can do that right yeah and she said as a result one week she came the receptionist came dressed up in a pringles tube <laughs> like just, it's escalated right, exactly. <laughs> but with um with the leadership kind of i think it still does matter like that people set an example at the top which you do which is yeah. great so i think that someone along the line does tell you to be powerful you kind of need to be a bit mean right i've i was definitely told that like don't be too nice i don't know if it's different i don't know if i was told different things to get ahead or whatever but you're not scary i mean i don't work with you every day so i don't actually know but it seems like that's not important when you're changing work culture either like do you think people in power need to kind of chill out of it yeah, I mean, look, you know, I think a lot of us in work have serious face, right? You know, if, if the best example I always think of this is that, you know, we all bring a mask to work. We all sort of put on a... And the best example I always think is I ask people, did your mum have a phone voice? And I don't know about your mum, but my mum, when she answered the phone, because, like, she answered the phone at work, and she was a receptionist at work, so when she answered the phone at home, she became at least three postcodes posher than we actually were. And it's because, at work, we feel like we need to be, like, a better version of ourselves. Probably doesn't laugh as much, probably a bit more serious, a little bit four octaves posher than we currently are. And that's it, because we put on a mask at work. And and I think bosses are especially guilty of that. Bosses think, okay, I need to be in boss mode now. I need to be like serious mode. And it's definitely the at the enemy at the expense. It's the enemy of creativity. So w- what you find is when um, when people can't the jargon is when people can't bring their full selves to work. What happens is when you're in a creative idea section, session, you don't say the idea that's coming to your mind. Mm. You say the idea that you think people will like. And so it tends to be that you end up with really bad ideas, yeah. really boring ideas that, you know, it's no wonder that committees produce rubbish things because no one's bringing their clever, inventive mm. best parts to themselves. So there's a big part of a changing work culture yeah. is allowing people to be themselves yeah the other thing i'll say about creativity is that you know the average person worldwide gets 140 emails a day and uh and so like the volume of emails and the volume of responsibility and then you add meetings on top there's no time to get anything done and you'll know like we all find ourselves swiping away emails and just trying to to get on top of things every moment of the day when you look at how creativity happens creativity normally sits I sort of looked into the neuroscience of this, so none of it's, this is my own work. There's sort of three broad systems that scientists most use. The executive attention network, which is like your mate, what you're doing right now, what you're focusing on. The salience network, which is sort of checking on out what's going on around you. So some scientists say that's like running simulations, what you think is going to happen. And then there's the default network. And the default network is sort of 
what's going on in the background. So uh, the best way that we feel the default network is when we're sort of daydreaming and when we're not thinking of anything. Right. Well, what's disappeared in the last few years? Daydreaming, right? Because the moment we're bored, even, you know, you get in the lift, you get your phone out. You know, you're in a queue for something, you get your phone out. The default network has been squeezed out. But if you look at creative people, they've often been really clever at finding a way to trigger their default network. So you like, I bet you... like. I mean, I've got, I ha- I've had th- the three ideas for my books, like the next one that I've come up with. Every single one of them has been on a flight. And I don't want to say, like, go and book yourself a flight to get an idea, because obviously flights are really expensive as well. But it, what, it's been periods of time on my phone is on airplane mode, yeah. and I'm staring out the window. Isn't that crazy? I mean, so maybe I just need to recreate that more yeah. often. I don't need to be on a flight. Well, the mad thing about that is that daydreaming, and that it's actually really delightful. When, when we allow ourselves to abandon ourselves into it, we have to often find good ideas. My favourite example of that is the guy who wrote the Social Network film and wrote the oh, West Aaron, Wing, Aaron Sorkin. Aaron Sorkin, He yes. found his best ideas the were happening in the shower. Yes, and, but he said he had eight showers a day Eight once. showers a day. He had, he's had a shower installed in the corner of his office and any time he's sort of <laughs> at a loss of what to do, he does what you are, like... He, airplane mode of brain it's like go and find yourself in a place where you've got no distractions no interruptions and your brain's actually Mm. what your brain is doing there it's connecting a lot of things that you've lots of seeds you've sown you know you've seen something you've you've seen something on pinterest you've read something someone said something to you and they're all bouncing around in your head the two times that they're activated is when you're sleeping and when you're daydreaming Mm. And exactly what you've discovered there is what those people have discovered. Creativity doesn't come from being perpetually busy. You know, every time put, someone puts a meeting in your diary or every time you're answering an email, you're actually crushing a space where you could be creative. Yeah, so I, just, I have Mondays now where I, okay. do, I don't do anything. Well, I do, I do, but it's like time to... I mean, how can you have a job about the future of things when you're not even thinking? Yeah. It's kind of... It's hard to carve out the time, but it's so so true. And Isn't there's, that a, there's about a, your airline idea, though. Being on planes, coming up with creative ideas. Yeah, every crazy? single one of them wow. has just come to me like a light bulb on a plane. I'm not even really trying that hard. It's just the fact that I'm not doing anything for the first time in ages. Um, but that. because there's a bit in here about walking meetings. Yes, that, that was interesting. Yes, that's what I because, and you know, this is what I say in that. Walking meetings are really awkward. <laughs> if you say I've to, never been on one. If you say to someone, "Let's go for a walking meeting," and you've picked the wrong person, you'll never do a second walking meeting. <laughs> so you got. So that's a good strategy right. if you want to get rid of people. <laughs> <laughs> you got to pick the right person. So, like, don't waste good ideas on bad people. But the woman who did the research on that, Marilia Prezzo at Stanford University, found that eighty-one percent of people who went for a walk came up with more ideas. And actually, if you go outside, you come up with even more. That was that was on a treadmill, mm. and they come up with about two thirds more ideas than the people who don't so really interesting it, it stimulates um it stimulates our ability to to have sort of divergent thinking to have so it's not very good if you want to narrow down the options of what you're going to do next year but if you're looking for what those options might be walking's yeah. really good for it yes i have a fear that if we don't do these things we're going to be our brains are going to change yeah. And I was reading something recently about um, social media addicts. I mean, we're all addicts probably to a point, but it was about how a few people who had been interviewed, they, they, they were forgetting to like pay bills. They were forgetting right. to go to the dentist. Like they, they, they were forgetting to really, they were so out of their own human experience and yeah. just in the phone or in the game absolutely that they were forgetting things and that scares me because I've done that I've been very forgetful when I've been very busy on my phone yeah well stress kills uh, memory as well so you know if you're in a state of heightened anxiety stress kills your capacity to think Mm. and I know know this is sort of almost feels hypocritical that a guy who works at a social media product would say that but I think you know all of us getting a good balance with how we use Mm. all aspects of of technology is is a really good thing there was a really interesting study of teenagers and um, it's just been conducted this year completed this year a two-year study and they looked at teenagers who um, never gave them gave themselves any space from distractions and they found after two years the ones that had been perpetually entertained and busy had thought less about their lives had Mm. thought less about you know the world and greater sort of social things they they hadn't basically thoughts had had never fermented Mm. they'd they just sat there and then another thought would come along so 
I know it feels like all boring and, and whatever, but allowing your brain little breathers and time to do nothing seems to be a really good route to making your brain better. Yeah. Oh, totally. Right, I've got two two more questions, but they're quick, I promise. Um, I think a lot of people listening to this, they're, you know, young-ish women, kind of, and men, but um, probably in their second or third job, maybe in first. You, I think you're a really inspiring person who, like, in the first page, you talk about, like, some of your first jobs. Like, we've all had jobs we hated, but you talk about, like, working, like, the fast food, a fast food place, like, all these jobs. And, like, I feel like you really have worked really hard and also been very successful really without much help from the outside world like you've kind of done you know how many connections at twitter for it like you've really kind of done this you know grafted how do you think there's a reason why some people do kind of just navigate and and get become successful do you think it's like people skills like I mean, it's like a hard question, you analysing yourself. You know what? I spoke at a school this morning, and I always say to the school kids, there's one thing that changed my life. So I grew up in a council estate in Birmingham, and, you know, my dad was too ill. Uh, My my dad certainly wasn't able to help me. Um, And uh, and basically, the best thing, I went to university, first person in my family to go to university, but very easily could not have gone to university if my French A-level hadn't miraculously turned out okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um... But uh, I spent a year unemployed after I came back from university. And I actually, you know, had it gone over a year, I was thinking, if you're a year out of work, that's Mm going to be bad. And I drew a four-page cartoon CV. And that changed my life. Because I think what I always say to kids is probably at some point you're going to write a CV. And probably when you've got to do anything, the first thing you do is you go to Google. And then, then you click on the first link. And the good news is there's going to be a template there of a CV. And you're going to fill that in. And the only problem with that is that's what every other single person has done. And so I drew this cartoon CV. And I am, uh, I am a f- five out of ten cartoonist. <laughs> but it had a charm to it. And I used to send it with like a yellow, like your your... Uh, um, trademark colour but I, I used to send it with like a, a letter on yellow paper and uh, and it went from I never used to get any replies to anything I sent to I had people phoning me up people saying come in for work experience you know mm. I got offered a job it was conditional I'm passing my driving test I failed my driving test <laughs> uh, but you know that transformed my life because ultimately I got a job at Capital Radio from that and so what I always say to kids is that I receive zero letters in the mail every week. That's slightly a lie. Occasionally, crazy Twitter users write to me. But, you know, legitimate... I I receive no real mail in the post. And so I say to kids, you know, even if you've got a network, don't ask your dad to get your work experience. Write to... What do you fancy working at? Snapchat, write to the boss of Snapchat. What do you fancy working at? BBC. Write to someone who's the producer of your favourite show at the BBC. Mm. With a beautiful and and thoughtful composed piece of creativity, and they'll probably take notice of you. Yeah, because that's what they're looking for. Right, they just look at you know, people are not. There's there's a guy who works at Spotify, and I saw him tweet yesterday saying, "No one is out to make you lose, but you've got to give us a reason to make mm. you want to win." Yeah, it's like that Seth Godin. Back to Seth Godin. Um, he, what he says about be remarkable, which means make something that's worth remarking on so even someone going oh have you seen this letter yeah and the best thing about it just to illustrate why that's exactly right is that um (laughs) i turn up for the interview at that job so i sent it to loads of record companies the record company said look there's a recession going on there's no jobs here right now but i thought i've got something in this cv so i used to change the first square and send it to every job that i liked so it looked like i'd done it all for them clever cheating (laughs) but anyway uh the capital radio people they said we have to say you're the one of the worst people we've ever interviewed but your cv you were cartoon boy your cv had gone around the office (laughs) so there were like a hundred people rooting for you and so when when they had three jobs they gave two of them to well-qualified people and they gave one to cartoon boy and i think that's why it changed my life because i would not have got that job and so consequently but you know illustration as well I lost one job along the way. I tried the technique for another job a few years later, slightly different, and 
that went wrong. So, you know, you've got to build into the fact that probably sending it to one person, oh, yeah. sending it to Kate Winslet, hoping to be Kate Winslet's assistant, can't <laughs> guarantee success. Send it to 10 people and it might, it might have a success. Yeah, I feel like there's a real kind of trend at the moment as well for like tweets going viral when a, yeah. when a letter is sent in to someone to yeah that's you know, right it's funny or it's kind of complaining about something in a funny way but um so your book comes out in january on january the blue monday blue monday the most miserable day of the year the 17th yeah well 21st is blue monday okay blue monday blue monday um what are you looking forward to with the book coming out like what's the main thing are you just looking forward to people yeah. changing i mean things, look you know I'm, I'm sort of quite subversive right i, I like sort of in my in my capital radio job i was always the person who enjoyed asking really difficult questions and you know i love the fact that most of us there's a bit of emperor's new clothes right about work so that you know you're going to a meeting it will be a horrible miserable meeting but you ask people after the meeting what do you think they go good meeting good me-. right no one no one tells the truth about work i just hope it's like a bad haircut right. i love it yeah. <laughs> no one tells the truth about work how's your day been it's been great it's been great you're going home you're gonna finish your bottle of sauvignon on your own it's like it's not been a great day it's been a disastrous day and i just hope the reason why it's 30 things like i say is that maybe just one of them you can like you can upturn the tables and, and change things. So that's all I want. If, if one person says to me, you know what, we got rid of our meeting of death from what you said. Or we started Crisp Thursday. Crisp Thursday. <laughs> Imagine that if like all of a sudden these are run on Doritos from, from people taking it up. What's, what's your favourite one? Just that, that is my last question. Yeah. I mean, for me, I, lo- I love um, the science behind laughter. And, you know, so consequently, laughter's really in there twice. It's in there once and it's in later on. Or actually, I love, there's one big thing if you hear about work culture, people talk about psychological safety, which is a blah, blah, blah way of, of saying, will people speak up to the boss? And I, mm-hmm. I met a guy who was in the special forces, so he won't even let me say what form of the special forces he was in. But he told me, after every day, so they've been out in Helmand province or they've been in Iraq, they all gather at the end of the day while they're standing up, sweating in their kit, and they'll say what happened that day, and he'll lead by saying what he did wrong. Right, And wow. by him, we presume that people in the military never say what went wrong, but he says, you know, I could have done this better. And he says the very fact that he said what he did wrong it gives access to everyone else to admit what they did wrong mm. whereas normally we're so scared oh, to say blame, what's done to, blame game yeah that's right yeah. yeah but it wasn't me it wasn't me I don't know who did it like, but whereas you know the elite military they and they know that you don't get to those things easily so you need to have a system to do it so their system is standing up and sort of doing this honesty collective honesty so I just love that I love the fact love that, that. We, we think the idea is the military are orders and you know everyone the bosses know what they're doing and everyone else follows not at all even in like the elite military yeah. even in the most like structural yeah. kind of yeah, mili- militant environment. Yeah. Even they can be... And it's courageous, I think, to admit what went wrong. Exactly that. And yeah. as soon as your boss says, here's what I did wrong, everyone else can feel like, okay, yeah. it's not disastrous to be wrong. I love that. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for And it's me. really... This book is obviously really well-researched, but it's also like a bit of a hug in a book. It's oh, like you can do it and be happier at work. Thank you So thank me. you so much. Thank you. Thank you.